Welcome back everyone to season four of the Kelly Mental Health Podcast located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Throughout this season, CEO Linda Kelly will be chatting with people from many walks of life across the world about a variety of mental health and wellness topics. Please keep in mind that this is not a substitution for counseling. If you would like to talk to a licensed therapist, please visit us at www.kellymentalhealth.com. Welcome back to Kelly Mental Health Podcast. Eric G. Schneider, based out of New York, joins me today to discuss passion, intimacy, and commitment in a wide array of human relationships. Eric has been working in the field for 30 years as a sex and relationship specialist and is currently completing his dissertation for a PhD in human sexuality. In this episode, Eric and I discuss how the flood of changes in our society around relationships and the escalator of our expectations of each other and ourselves have rapidly changed how we view and participate in intimate and sexual relationships. I'm caught off guard when Eric points out the flaw in my idea that we should be seeking solutions in couples counseling rather than learning to be comfortable in the unknown. He so aptly describes ourselves as always in the process of being and becoming. Listen in. Welcome back to the Kelly Mental Health Podcast. I'm Linda Kelly, your host, and I am here with a very special guest, Eric Schneider out of New York. Hi, Eric. Hello there. Hi. It's so, really nice to be here. yeah, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited. Um, the Kelly Mental Health Podcast is a little bit of a passion project. Obviously, I'm in private practice myself in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Uh, I run a clinic with other mental health providers and uh, part of what we like to do is, you know, write articles about things that honestly, things that our clients teach us, mm. uh, things that we learn when we're, um, you know, just kind of in the field, the, the studies that we pick up, the things that we learn to interpret and just life in general. And so the podcast is really all about that too. And, mm. you know, side note, then I get to talk to really cool people. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds so, great. So tell me about yourself. Uh, what can I tell you about myself? I'm a, a psychotherapist here in New York City. My focus of my work is sex and relationships, primarily uh, doing this work uh, for the last 32 some odd years. Whatever else you want to know, you can ask. <laughs> that sounds good. And you're also doing your PhD? I'm doing my second doctorate. This is a PhD in human sexuality, specifically at the California Institute of Integral Studies in, in here in America. There are only two schools that have accredited programs. One is the uh, one is Widener University for Human Sexuality. The other is California Institute of Integral Studies. I started out at Widener, uh, Widener and then moved to the California Institute of Integral Studies and was the first cohort there. Um, so you've been working with relationships for a long, long time. Is there anything that ever still surprises you about working with relationships? Well, it, 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 to talk about relationships over a 30-year period is, is to talk about changes in culture, right? So relationships don't exist in a vacuum. They exist within our, our cultural, uh, whatever our cultural zeitgeists are mm -hmm. at, at a particular period of time. Um, so, so in answer to your question, yes, because the culture has changed, right? And so individuals change, have changed a great deal. And, uh, you know, the diversity of uh, relational structures and relational um, uh, spaces and, and how people are identifying and the kinds of relationships people want to participate, it's all changing, right? In other words, we're not, we're not encountering, I mean, we still are to some extent, but sort of that conventional idea of, of what colloquially is referred to as the relationship escalator. You know, you meet someone, you, you date someone, you fall in love, you get married. And if, if we're talking about the disnification of relationships, you live happily ever after. That happens, but it's actually uh, harder, much harder right now because of uh, the sort of expanded awareness and consciousness people have about their identity, about their orientations, about what really works for them, what doesn't really work for them. Um, so there's a lot of fluidity when it comes to relationships now that that early on I didn't experience. Hmm. That, you know, that's a really interesting perspective. And, and you're right. I think years and years ago, it was just more, you, you kind of knew what to expect. Very much so. Actually, I was talking to a, a colleague of mine this morning around uh, the challenges of, of, 
you know, ghosting even just a few years ago was something people were like frustrated by, up in arms about, but now it's becoming more and more commonplace and consequently more and more acceptable for people to just fall off the face of the earth. It, it still stings. It's still, uh, the, the ramifications of it are, are still around. In other words, for some people, okay, well, that's what happens. For other people, what's wrong with me? The impact on, on one's relationship to oneself is impacted by it. You know, when, when someone ghosts, they kind of leave this, this uh, big open space for all sorts of interpretations and all sorts of projections and all sorts of misunderstandings. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's become so commonplace that relational accountability is actually quite decreased. That seems like a sort of inverse association, because if you are, you know, if, if we are more so aware, we see more of our, our impact on relationships and, and our choices, you figure, figure we'd be better at it. <laughs> No, it, it, yes, I, I agree with you, right? Given, given that, you would think we would be better at it. Yet at the same time, because culture has changed, relational culture has changed so, so much and so quickly, we have not fully adapted to the changes, uh, or, you know, and it, it, there's a dialogical nature to it, right? As we adapt to it, it changes, we change, it kind of goes back and forth. But but the fact of the matter is, you know, human beings tend to be walking contradictions. We want one thing in time A and in time B, we want something else. Um, uh, it, it lends itself to a lot of fickleness. And, and consequently, though, with, with the, the push in and the availability and the visibility of self-help culture in our world, um, we're, we confuse or, or conflate in some ways individuality for autonomy. And, uh, you know, individual, individuality is about, you know, me and whatever I want. Autonomy is about me also, but it's not without the awareness of, of others, right? Um, in other words, I can see myself as a separate person, but in relationship to and in relationship with others. And, um, yeah, I think that there is a, uh, you know, it, you know, technology just makes it even worse and much easier to just vanish. But, um, and that plays a big role in how people are, are dealing with relational spaces, especially now during COVID, it's even more expanded, right? Mm -hmm. um, but yes, one would think with increased awareness, there would be a sense of greater integrity and a greater awareness of other. And, but self-help culture also speaks out of both sides of its mouth, you know? know what you want and, and, and put out what you want out there and, and go for what you, you know, okay, but in relationship to others. And certainly um, we're seeing the polarization of that a lot in the U.S. in terms of, uh, in terms of um, just the larger political culture has also has this kind of, uh, you know, even, I mean, how, how wearing a mask becomes political here is kind of quite interesting. Like for someone, for someone wearing a mask means I'm taking away your freedom. For someone else means I'm actually being a member of a larger community in which I participate. And, and um, my self-interest includes being interested in others and how they're doing. Um, but it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge right now. That is a huge challenge. You're right. And uh, I, I hear what you're saying just about that difference between, you know, yes, do for yourself and, and be the best you can be and fill your cup first. But on the other hand, we are social creatures. We rely on community to, not only for survival, but to thrive. We do. I, I completely agree with you, right? We have affiliative needs. We have the desire to belong, to be connected to, to, to relate to. Um, but when it comes to issues of, of, of dating, um, a lot of that's situated for a lot of people right now within sort of consumerism, capitalism, and, and commodification, right? So people are not, <clears throat> they're not really relating to one another, they're making choices, right? So it's kind of like, I'm, I'm, I'm choosing something off the shelf, you know, and does it fit in my life? And, and if it doesn't fit, well, maybe that was the wrong one. Um, so we're not really getting to know people. Some people are, I mean, I'm speaking in monoliths, but people aren't really relating to one another. They're, they're evaluating one another in terms of, of, of resources, in terms of, of, you know, uh, well, depending on, on what 
what someone values at a particular moment in time. And that's the, the interesting thing, right? When it comes to our values, they're not, they're not, all, they're not aligned. They're, they're often contradictory, right? My area of focus is on the in-betweens. So when I'm looking at relationships, I'm not looking at the in-betweens between people, but also the in-betweens that we have with ourselves, right? So worldview is a, is a, is a, pretty hardy construct. And when you're looking at the in-between you and, or an individual in culture or an individual in society, um, there's a dialogical nature of those two things. At the same time, what's in between is worldview and language. In other words, those are the things that, that we live in from and through often unconsciously. And so, um, you know, how we, there, there's such a, um, a consumer focus uh, in even even down to attractions and what we value and how we evaluate um, that it it becomes I mean it becomes quite impersonal and it becomes very much an objectification kind of a thing and so the other is an it uh, you know from from Buber's I thou I it we, we get an I it relationship but the weird thing about objectification of others is that in order to do that we also have to objectify ourselves so it is we have this increased awareness and and certainly um you know we see greater fluidity in terms of gender and in terms of of, of identity and in terms of uh relational structures and and all of those kinds of we're definitely seeing more of that but yet people still have a desire for aspects of the conventional, you know? So we can't ignore some ideas about from an essentialist perspective in terms of pair bonding, right? Um, but the structures of that can be different, but we're not, people are having a lot of trouble just getting something to stick. And uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a complete advocate of, you know, you have to be in a relationship in order to be happy, in order to be fulfilled. No, that's not true. And certainly, um, uh, there's been a lot of research and a lot of uh, queer critique of that heteronormative framework. Um, and certainly the notion of, of uh, DePaulo talks about uh, singleism uh, and how, uh, you know, somehow if you're single, you're disadvantaged in some way in, in, <laughs> in culture or that, you know, you're, you're not going to be fulfilled or, you know, your life is... And, you know, that's, that's a real cultural kind of uh, identity issue rather than one of uh, reality because people can have a lot of different friends who actually they have, a, you know, there's a great deal of love in their lives. It just doesn't happen to look like that particular thing. Mm-hmm. Would you say that, I mean, just that objectification you're talking about, why is that happening now or what's driving that? It's not that it didn't happen earlier, yeah. but, but but it's kind of an interesting phenomenon, right? I mean, how people used to get together was be in in much smaller ways, right? So so we didn't uh, we didn't have technology, right? Uh, and technology, you know, we get habituated by what we do, right? And technology, you know, I, I, Amazon, shopping on Amazon and, and, and looking for a partner can, you know, or a sex partner or a relational partner, it's kind of we do the same behavior, right? We're busy doing this, um, uh, right? And, and what is that? The research suggests that every time I see some, someone that I like, I have a little dopamine hit. Right. And so I have this little dopamine hit. And what am I doing? I'm actually, you know, it's kind of like a drug, right? For all intents and purposes, it works the same way a drug works. So, so the, I'm not really practicing contact, connecting. um, And also everything is super fast. Now there is no anticipation. There is no uh, getting to know uh, in the same way that there, that the lack of technology used to allow so let me say a little bit more about that. Um, we were smaller in communities. So we met people through things that we were experiencing, uh, whether that be at work or, you know, some hobby. Even years ago, smaller communities, you know, if you were involved in a church or a temple or something, you would meet people within those kinds of contexts. Um, and even for, for, for uh, gay men, 
that whole process has changed a great deal, right? So, so if you if you were cruising um, when years ago, um, you'd have to make eye contact. Um, you know, there would be some kind of, you know, passing each other by, looking at each other. You know, then you'd have to talk, right? <laughs> and you know, you weren't naked yet, and so you would then have to go through, you know, and and so you'd have to go through this process in order to engage in a sexual hookup. Now, sec- sexual hookups are, you know, I'm I'm not really looking at you. I'm looking at a picture of you or various pictures of you. I'm looking at a description of your stats. And so that kind of, it's a very different way of assessing attraction, right? In other words, if I see you and you're wearing clothes and you smile at me and I smile at you, it may not be about sort of the, the one-dimensional image of you, but something something else might be going on. In other words, it's, it's much more embodied in a way. Mm-hmm. The other is very disembodied. Um, and I'm just, I'm talking about one little thing, but you're asking me about changes over time. And in a sense, you know, there was much more anticipation, not just even in terms of, of heteronormative relationships and heterosexuals, you had much more anticipation. Um, uh, and I don't mean to romanticize the past, all I'm saying is that the, the context and the way that people got together and sort of the traditional uh, focus, the more conventional focus of relationships kept people in that relational escalator more. And that, you know, that escalator is, you know, like I said, you meet someone, you date them, you, et cetera. Um, and I'm not saying that that is the only trajectory possible, um, but it is hard to get things to stick a little bit and to last more than a few encounters, um, you know, if if it's so easy to to look for another. Um, Russ Bolt's work years ago, um, not so long ago actually, um, was about the investment model for relationships. And one of the things that she talked about was you know shared resources and you know how you're starting to uh, put things together. Um, and, but one of the things she talked about was the quality of available alternatives. In other words, the quality of available alternatives could contribute to relational instability. Um, now we have the illusion and access to all sorts of available others. Um, and most of that of course is projection, right? We're, we're comparing what is to what we think could be. Um, it's very much heightened by the, the sort of dopaminergic effect of, 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 you know, kind of the excitation of, of other lots of projecting. Um, uh, so for even within the gay community, and of course I don't work with just gay men, but within the gay community, if we go back historically, uh, open relationships and extra dyadic sex was something very common, but longevity of relationships was also very common. In other words, in that context, when there was an environment outside, when the culture was less friendly to us, it actually acted as a bit of a constraining force. Mm-hmm. Now it's not a constraining force. We don't live in the neighborhoods anymore. There's much more, you know, so we're kind of all over the place. And, and so there's less of that kind of, of geographic constraint. But, you know, that has become much more normative in other in, for heterosexuals and 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 and, uh, and 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 straight people now in terms of uh, the the fluidity of it all makes it also very challenging you know because convention makes you behave a certain way and you have certain kinds of expectations but now everybody's expectations are all over the place um, so it's it's a lot more uh, i'm using the word fluid but uh, that's the only word i can come up with right now but it's very very fluid and um uh bromances are up and bromances are those you know straight uh homosocial relationships which kind of verge on the homoerotic but pretty much stay in the homosocial um, but a lot of that is because of the gender role strain and struggling with women's desires and, and taking on issues of emotional labor that are emotion work labor is different, but emotion work um, that, you know, they don't, they rather do intimacy in other ways than that particular way. Um, and, and so, and 
women's second marriages, a lot of them are opting not to live with partners. In other words, there are a lot of people who are engaged in relationships with men uh, and they're living separately, but they do consider themselves partners. And that's because they don't want to do that kind of emotion work. It's, it's really interesting. I'm just kind of thinking about some things I've reflected on in my practice. Uh, for example, one thing that people aren't always aware of, and I'm curious, I mean, obviously your knowledge of this, when a person can be heteroromantic, but homosexual at the same mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and what's your experience with that? How would well, you explain but that's that? That's it, right, right. That's one of the things, right. With yeah. all of these varied uh, identities, right. Like, uh, like just because someone is asexual doesn't mean they don't want to be in a romantic relationship or an intimate mm -hmm. relationship. Right. So, so Sternberg's triangular theory of love is, is, is one in which he talks about these three dimensions, passion, intimacy, and uh, uh, commitment. Uh, and, you know, if you put them on a lot of different, if you put them on sort of a, a relational matrix, what you see is, you know, high intimacy, low passion is a friendship, right? Uh, high passion, low intimacy is a fuck buddy or, mm -hmm. you know, a sex buddy. Mm -hmm. um, uh, high intimacy, uh, what, what is it? Uh, high intimacy, high passion is considered the ideal version of uh, companionate relationships. What you're saying, which I'm finding very interesting, is that when you have all of this, this different kind of not just intersectionality, but, but um, uh, a variety of, in other words, more nuanced identities, right, that are not binary, uh, which include, I, I have romantic friendships, and I'm not interested in a sexual relationship, or I have romantic friendships with women, and really, the people I want to sleep with is men. This makes relational uh, kinds of context very difficult uh, to actually, um, you know, participate in. Um, so it's it's far more complicated than it's ever been before as a consequence of this, and we're not caught up yet. No, it sounds uh, like, uh, you know, even just that there's been so much more awareness, so much more sort of coming out as this or that, but then they come out and then they're sort of forced, <laughs> they're, they're pressured to follow this same escalator. It's like, okay, so you want to be with this person? Okay, go the same way, but that still doesn't fit. Right. And one of the reasons it doesn't fit, I love that you said that one of the reasons it doesn't fit is one of the things that uh, human sexuality scholarship or social science or any of these things is very constructivist in its orientation. We can't ignore some of the biology of all of this pair bonding seems to be a bit hardwired in, in some form or another. So as fluid as our desires might be, there's still the biology that's part of the part of the thing. And so, you know, uh, like I said, we're like walking contradictions, right? Our psychology is not separate from our biology. We can't make that kind of an extraction. Um, we can focus in on aspects of that. Uh, then we get into culture, we get into practice. Um, and it can really be very, very difficult. The other thing is too, you know, uh, there's a, there has been over the last five, five, I would say five to 10 years, uh, more visible transition. So here you are, you and I are in a relationship and you wake up one morning and go, I'm a guy. <laughs> and it's not like you want to end our relationship. But now you're interested, let's say, in, in the whole transformational process of what it might be, right? Now, other people are different, right? Even within that, there are extreme nuances. Mm -hmm. Some people identify as men, and they're very happy with their, their, um, their physiology, uh, but they're not identifying as women. And some people want, you know, the entire thing to be aligned with a male identity or, or conversely, a female identity. It doesn't really, but it's happening within relationships as well where we were when we were 20 may change when we're 30 could change when we're 40. Um, it's really difficult. Right. And you're going, well, you know, I thought I was going to be with a man and now you want to transition and, and, and I, I'm not, I'm not ready to be less. I mean, it really can become very complicated. Mm -hmm. How in the world would you address that with a couple to normalize, to validate to what's the solution? Well, it depends on how you define the problem. Right. What's the solution? Right? Yeah. So, so linguistically, um, and I've become over the last 10 years kind of more of a nerd about that 
more and more <laughs> um, because language language is 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 can be be limiting and yet also liberating and most linguists would uh, opt you know Chomsky and all those would opt for a more limited view that we have a limited vocabulary and therefore our ability to move beyond that vocabulary is is tricky but yet we see even our language and vocabulary are changing so it's not entirely true that it's all rigid and forced your question from a mental health pr perspective um, uh, is is important right how do you help and that means you have to know what help means to the people who are asking for it. Um, that's where it, it gets really tricky. So even linguistically, right, in, within the mental health field, there are people who have problems that they want to solve, people who have issues that they want to face, people who have wounds that they want to heal. Each one of those linguistic frameworks is in and of itself a kind of uh, uh, psychological positionality within time, so psychological time and space, right? So you know, changes in relationships, you know, we've normalized someone getting sick in a relationship, but we haven't quite normalized the fact that, you know, hey, my sexual appetites, you know, I was really into this kind of sex, but I'm curious about that kind of sex. That may seem much more manageable for most people. Uh, some people are diehard when it can become and have become much more rigid about their sexual scripts. Um, but but in terms of, of, you know, I married a man and now he wants to be a woman, what do I do? Um, it's not a problem to be solved. It's a process to go through. And by go through, again, limits of language, everything is about going through someplace to get someplace else. It's a process that one can go through and make decisions about along the way. And there is no right decision. And there is no wrong decision, right? Um, but how one makes those decisions and whether or not it's contactful and connected and, you know, uh, or, you know, uh, 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 sort of a temper tantrum and I'm done with this, I'm not into, you know, goodbye. Um, that's the question of, of, are we doing this in a relational way or are we doing this in a, an uncaring, unkind way? Um, you know, so I think your question is a good one. I would never attempt to try to solve anything as much as I would attempt to support, encourage exploration. Um, from my vantage point around, around therapeutics, I very strongly uh, am of the opinion of, uh, um, you know, that, that, that the, my approach is that it needs to be both experimental um, uh, experiential and um, uh, existential. And so that whenever anyone is talking about their sexuality or their preferences or their sexual scripts or whatever it might, or their identity, you get to explore and you get to discover. And, you, you know, it's, it's, it's what a life is, right? Um, there are no answers there are lots of contexts that are willing to give answers, but there really aren't any answers per se. Um, and I think like not only the self-help movement, but also even in terms of therapy, that models tend to impose upon others rather than expose or uh, allow for, or um, uh, allow for discovery and exploration. You know, when we have all these frame, you know, it's attachment theory, so I'll use EFT or it's the Gottman method. Here's what good, happy couples do just do what happy couples do as if to say you know there aren't you know and and so i i have some objection to the methodologies that are also uh impositional rather than open and exploratory um you know uh so so in terms of your question it's like well what's the end no it's, it's we have to keep opening to the to the the ongoing evolution of, of being. Now, this is interesting for me when I hear about uh, solution, it kind of implies to me and, and the inference is one that, uh, you know, relationship is, is sort of this journey and that there are these hiccups and then there's this ultimate destination where everybody's trying to go to as opposed to something that is much more open and much more exploratory and much more uh, discovery oriented. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so so a lot of people, you know, want to fix things and, you know, uh, you know, change things or change the other person. Uh, that always happens, you know. <laughs> of course. Um, it's like the the you know everybody wants to be uh, you know to be happy and to have love in their lives, and really ultimately what they want is their partner to take the garbage out, right? And so that's what they kind of work really hard at trying to get to the other to to change. And when we kind of we kind of open up to the 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 lived exploration of being solutions kind of emerge naturally without having to come to some forced uh, or imposed upon uh, ideal mm-hmm. I think from the therapist's perspective, when I talk about um, solutions, I personally I'm so more focused on just simply the distress because ultimately you know people can lay, live any which way they like they can be who they want we don't need to um, have them they don't need to gen, you know justify anything really but ultimately if they're sitting across from me and they are distressed because they they're having difficulty coping and adapting to this change they don't know how to frame it you know that that's kind of where i focus and so what you're saying too is the whole journey is so mm. much more than just off and on yes no yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. and and often when people are distressed they want something that's off and on right um but let's let's go back to distress what kind of distress is the distress that we're focusing in on often what happens is that that one comes directly in contact with uh, a cultural interject about how one is and it's it's it the distress is caused because who one what one's desires are antithetical to the cultural the held cultural ideals in other words the ones that they're holding and so part of that process is an investigation and and a deconstruction destruction of some of those things um, because distress is not just some arbitrary thing it usually is some kind of contradiction between uh you know what is is maybe becoming truer for someone but also then coming up against some kind of uh cultural interjects or cultural ideas that have been uh taken on as as conceptual uh frameworks and like i said often unconscious right so so um you know a very simple version of this, which I have found very interesting over the years, whenever I work with entrepreneurs, is that entrepreneurs don't have some kind of imposed structure to work in. So without that, without that structure, they often go to default uh, frameworks to evaluate how they're doing. And they're never doing enough. <laughs> they're never good enough. They're never living, right? Because no one is giving them kind of any kind of structure to determine uh you know what 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 then is 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 expected and you know when we think about uh you know so much of our lives are organized around external expectations right even down to school right we start very early on and already we're 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 very performant and performance oriented Right. So, you know, you got to do well on your, you know, get good grades, you know, all this kind of stuff and all produce these things and produce these things and, and keep demonstrating. And, you know, that's culture and society that we're trying to live up to. And then we find out, you know, that's not the only things that, that, that we take on in that process. Um, uh, I don't remember the sociologist, but he talked about, uh, uh, um, habitus which i thought was very interesting because it Im- implies habit uh, habit and habitat and so we're we're you know therapy is not about adjusting someone to some kind of norm there's a point at which one has to kind of um uh somehow breach the loyalty that one had to these ideas and, you know, uh, used to say, you know, people come out of one, con- uh, one, one uh, closet, but then there's another closet to come out of. And so in terms of sharing that and bringing that forward and supporting someone to explore 
the changes, what people find that is the distress is that it's somehow not aligned with the way they think they're supposed to be or the way that they're supposed to live. Uh, so you're right. I mean, it's very true, but helping someone uh, reframe, it's not a reframe as much as it's an exploration of the frame. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? You, you know, and you mentioned about the entrepreneur piece and I, I kind of had this thought like, yes, I wish there was a course syllabus for how we're supposed to live our lives. Uh, how much is enough? What is our upper limit of what we were supposed to do? Um, but in a lot of ways, we are sort of floating and, and this society that we're in, as you've mentioned, we've gone through so many changes and we're constantly transitioning mm -hmm. and, and adapting, evolving, trying to be better. Uh, you know, it can leave, I think, a lot of people feeling like, a, like they've lost their identity because there is no framework. Absolutely. Absolutely. In other words, you know, it, it's really nice, you know, I, I, I can, I can wax romantic about uh, mm -hmm. an idea of what it's like to live in a small town where everybody is, knows everybody and, uh, you know, everybody belongs to a, a particular church. And, and so <laughs> the identity is, is much easier in some way, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying that it's ideal. You know, everybody's got their nose up in everybody else's business and it has its own challenges. It's but less to think about. <laughs> and it's a lot less to think about. And, and so there is this sense of, 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 of spending a lifetime trying to figure out how to live. Everybody's living by meme from one meme to another meme now, you know, and you see all this, <laughs> these memes offering yes. all this, you know, advice about how to be and how to be. And, you know, if you put relational help, relationship help in Google, you'll find 2 billion sites of people telling you how to have better relationships none of that actually works. That's, that's more about positioning and that's more about trying to get, you know, it's, it's more about commerce than it is about actually uh, people discovering uh, what, what is workable for them. And that's what's workable for them is, is time limited. In other words, that's part of the issue, right? We don't, this solid, I know who I, no, I don't know who I am. Um, you know, I'm always in the process of being and becoming. And, and, and so one of the things that's very important is that often there are core dynamics that, that are so close that I can't see them, right? And so they, they push and they, you know, and, and those are things that actually where we, where we really need to help people be, uh, to increase their awareness. You know, we have this kind of cultural idea that we all have agency. And as far as I'm concerned, agency is a function of awareness. If you're not aware of something and you're, you know, like the African uh, proverb, you know, if you're, if you're the fish, the fish in the water, you're the last to know you're in water. You really don't, uh, you're not at the edge of your experience. And I, I believe that, that this sort of diffuse kind of culture, right? We see this, this, this pullback to something very conventional. We see it enacted uh, politically. Politically is motivated by many things, but the apprehension about not having a clear identity um, and how much psychology has had a bias to have a consistent sense of self and all of that stuff is that part of our job is to help people live with not knowing and not being sure and, you know, allowing, you know, and supporting that uh, because otherwise, you know, uh, that is the world we're living in now. The, the, the speed of it all, it all feels very, very fast to me. Um, that the, the level of changes, the diversity, the, the nuances, the, I, I can't possibly keep up with it. It's just too, too big. Um, and you're right. I mean, it is very hard then to navigate or uh, manage or, or uh, create workable uh, structures if, if a thing is changing all the time. Mm -hmm. And if there's so much going on as well, there's so many, so many things that are going on in the world in general. I mean, one of the things we talk to clients about is, of course, the power of our assumptions. And obviously, we use our assumptions primarily to save time because <laughs> you can't you can't question absolutely every step you take all day, 
But nowadays, because there's so much knowledge out there, so much awareness of, you know, even pronouns, things like that, people are having to question the most basic of things. And when they're stressed, when they're under a lot of pressure and they're worried about the world and we're in outrage culture, I mean, I could see how quickly that becomes overwhelming. And then people just shut down and go, nope, I can't, I'm not, you're, you're a he and you're a she and that's it. Very rigid. Very rigid, right? Mm-hmm. There's, uh, I don't remember what's his name, uh, the uh, psychology professor who is adamant about not changing pronouns. Uh, I don't remember his name. Um, but yeah, the, the, it, it's overwhelming, you know, and, and so, and it's interesting. It's not as, is it's complicated rather than complex. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's, 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 you know, Every decade, right? Every decade, right? The, the, when we first started, everybody was neurotic. You know, that was the language that yeah. uh, became part of it. Right? And then, then we went through a sexual uh, abuse period where everybody was sexually abused and, and was survivors. And then, then, um, then we went through, um, uh, I don't remember, but like everything now is trauma. And, 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 and so vocabulary is being taken on, but it's not actually well understood because, because we're, there's so much information and it's not, it's not informative, which is a weird kind of a thing. It's the illusion of information and it's the illusion of informative without having to go deeper or actually look at something in a more uh, careful and, 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 and more nuanced way. We have people who are using vocabulary. Um, I mean, this happens all the time, right? One person in a relationship is, gone through lots of therapy and they're basically psychoanalyzing their partner all the time mm-hmm. and you know and that's the well you know you don't get defensive you know it's okay I understand you know I know you had trauma in your history and it's like you know or uh, someone who has an addiction then assumes that any kind of sexual act activity outside of a relationship is somehow an addiction right so it's like it, you know it, to have language where we're light about it not not so defining about it um, but you're really you're you're absolutely right um, it's become overly complicated. And while the answer is not an oversim, you know, a step back and an oversimplification, um, time is what allows integration. And it's almost like we don't have any time to, to, to take a step back and, 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 and take a breath and, and see where we are in relationship to all of these kinds of changes. You're right. And of course, as we start to learn about these things, it tends to be that the pendulum swings too far the other way. And, it, you know, that becomes all encompassing. I, I mean, I remember in the honestly not too distant history where uh, people, people like even close to me were very anti-gay. But then it started to become bigger. The media started to include and then there were gay people in my you know, family's favorite shows and all of a sudden, okay, well, it's normalized. It's not scary anymore. So nowadays I'm seeing a lot more uh, transgender representation and, you know, you've got half the people are just going, I don't get this. I don't understand it, but then it will become normalized. So it's like, it what you're saying over, is absolutely. going, it's so uh, ab- fast. Absolutely. The recent, uh, the recent uh, research is that one out of six people under 23 years of age or identifying as an LGBTQ person, that's like unheard of. That's Mm -hmm. like a huge leap. And it's only because of, you know, it's only taken us 30 years from, you know, coming out of the closet for people to actually start to, you know, have have parents who are now my age who view it very differently because they've had this experience, but that's taken a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Right. And so now, yes, we have a lot of, uh, you know, we're, it's more visible. Transgender is, is far more visible. And, and uh, it's, you know, the, the, again, technology and, and the way that we get information is like it's overwhelming because, you know, you, when I was younger, we had two newspapers, the morning newspaper and evening newspaper and the six o'clock news. I mean, we didn't, you know, you know, now you can just every two minutes, everything is breaking news. But you're right. That's right. It takes a long time. Um, and then we're moving on to the next thing already. Absolutely. And and so (laughs) that, that does make it very difficult. And so, you know, people are having to come out of the closet, not just about their LGBTQ status, but the, the, 
as you said, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a romantic uh, heterosexual, but I'm, I'm a sexual uh, homosexual. And, you know, all of these things are becoming much more, uh, uh, culture is much more diffused than it's ever been before. And, and you know, uh, from the electric light, we weren't supposed to be up that late. <laughs> you know, uh, it's just we weren't supposed to be up that late. And, and, and so while this complexity, this complicatedness is emergent, a lot of people just find it overwhelming and just shut down because it's just too much. And so, you know, how do you organize your existence when you don't have a clear identity? Um, and I don't mean sexual identity, but I mean the desire to have an identity in the first place. Uh, has been portrayed a lot by psychology that one should have a self-sufficient blah 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 and a real sense of self and a and a and a uh, um, an integrated narrative as to you know selfhood and all this other stuff and it's not like that anymore. Hmm. So you know, of course, as I've been doing this podcast for a little while, and I I often will want to say, so what's the answer? And <laughs> now I know not to say. That. Well, because, you know, it's funny because I did a, a Goop interviewed me, uh, yeah. one of the counselors group uh, interviewed me. And, you know, at the end of this thing, the person says, so what's the takeaway? Right. Yeah. And so, so it's, 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 it's the way self-help and, and, and the way a lot of things like this work, we're not actually having conversations. We're looking for the answer. Mm -hmm. And and so what is the takeaway? And I remember when I was doing the interview was two years ago, I said, the biggest takeaway I can give you is to slow down. Just to slow down. You know, um, that's really, you know, I, I know, you know, everybody has a perspective and a take, but I'm not, you know, a person can't see their own eyes. And a lot of the ways in which you know, we live in language very unconsciously. We use it. And it's not the same as speaking is not an activity of translation from thought. It's, it's its own thing. And it's a lived, it's its own lived experience. And by reflecting on the very language that one is using, one can begin to reveal to oneself, right? Like people often think I'm asking questions in therapy to, to get information that they think I need. And I'm like, no, I don't care about that. What I care about is, is you being able to reflect on your own experience. I don't need to understand it. I don't even need to appreciate it. Unlike, you know, all the affective science about, uh, you know, how it's important, the relational aspect of therapy and blah, blah. It, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's a constructed relationship. It's very explicit, but it's still a very constructed relationship. And... Um, but often now where therapy used to be a substitute for intimacy, for a lot of people, therapy has the potential of becoming a substitute that it shouldn't become. Um, it's one thing to be responsive to one's emotional needs as opposed to satisfying them, right? And it's not our job to satisfy them. It is our job, as far as I'm concerned, to respond to them. Um, but in terms of, of the way that self-help has kind of trained us, it's trained us to to offer an answer. And, and, you know, so, and that's how, you know, if you want to sell a service, that's how you sell it. Mm -hmm. um, and you read my, my website. I don't have a, I don't have an answer. <laughs> <laughs> I have questions, but I don't have answers. Um, you know, because it's, it's going to be your own thing whatever that own thing is. And you, you know, um, but it, it's not, there isn't a real answer. Um, it's like I said, it's an exploration and from that exploration, different kinds of, of maybe what might be called solutions emerge or choices become clearer. Um, and then of course there are all sorts of restraining forces. Once one makes the choice to then act on the choice and all that kind of stuff. So, um, I appreciate complexity, um, and slowing down helps to take the complicated and allow a more complex and richer, consequently a richer experience of being than just trying to solve a problem. And I get it. I mean, you know, we, we, our frustration tolerance is, is much lower than it's ever been. Um, our focus is much lower than it's ever been. You know, we have the, I think uh, the last check on attention span was that of a goldfish. 
know? <laughs> and when I was younger, it was 20 minutes, but now it's, it's nanoseconds. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and that's another, I mean, there are many, there are many issues that, that are, are at play with all of this. So I don't, I don't have any takeaways. I don't have any answers. I just have questions but- and I have curiosity um, and I, I'm okay with not knowing which, you know, drives clients sometimes crazy because they want, they want, they're trying very hard to get out of distress, but they don't understand often that, that it's their, their frameworks that are actually creating or generating the distress. Absolutely. And And so, and that's really hard. The the questioning, no, that's, and I, I just, again, want to just stop on that for a moment. It's the questioning and the not knowing and the, you know, sort of getting right with that being okay with not knowing and that in itself is kind of beautiful if you think about it well, i can it, it's it's absolutely fantastic the mm-hmm. other thing that that you know you're to your point the association i'm very aware of without anticipation right, without any anticipation we also remove any magic and so we become you know more like uh you know kind of you know doing some kind of mental gymnastics. Um, and, and so, so the, the stuff that we don't know, the stuff that doesn't have answers yet, um, you know, that's about anticipating, that's about being patient, that's about discovery, that's about the magic of being. And we don't live in a lot of magic of being. We live in a lot of, okay, I got to fix this so that, right? It's kind of <laughs> that kind of quickly move on to the next thing. So that's, that's what I can share with you. Unfortunately, all solutions are temporary. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for everything, your, your knowledge that you shared and your perspective. Oh, it's just you're very welcome. You're I'm very probably welcome. going to have to listen again and just go into my space and <laughs> start doing some introspection. But uh, where can people find out more about you? Oh, they can find me at uh, my website, ericgschneider.com, E-R-I-C-G-S-C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R.com. Uh, same thing, I think on Facebook, uh, I think the same thing on Instagram. So, I mean, but I don't do much on any of those things really. Um, you know, I have friends who are prolific and marketing and putting out sound bites and I don't have sound bites. Well, I love your bio on your website. It made me laugh. So (laughs) I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad. Very personable. It's my good, it's my good enough website. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Well, thanks again. Lovely to talk to you and uh, we'll be in touch. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Be well. Bye-bye. Bye.